This is a Fubar Radio podcast. If you need any more information, head to fubarradio.com. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, oh God! Uh, uh, the problem today was uh, yeah, yeah. I had my headphones backwards. And now the, they don't look right. Now they the, do not look right. Now the, the wires all over the, the place. Uh, hello, my name's Nick Helm. <laughs> and my name is Nathaniel Metcalf. What's that beeping? It's a fucking truck backing up. Um, right, okay. Uh, uh, all right, let's just all fucking calm down, people. Yeah, come on. It's Friday. We're just, the weekend. Weekend has started. Um, <laughs> so the weekend starts here. The weekend starts here now. On <laughs> um, it's name, midday. It's midday. It's just after. Uh, just after midday. <laughs> oh God, we're both very tired. Uh, uh, Nat's started a new job, and I've been up all night fucking. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, uh, he hasn't got a new job. <laughs> uh, no, he has. Um, my mic's been turned down that because I uh, laugh too loud. Yeah, I know. Uh, but so I find um, um, I don't know. One of my favourite things in the world is uh, making <laughs> uh, making other people laugh. Uh, and I think it's a sad day uh, when I turn up to work in Fubar Radio and find that uh, Nathaniel Metcalf, my uh, partner in in mm-hmm. crime. Uh, to find that his microphone settings have been tampered with. Um, I thought Fubar Radio was uncensored broadcasting. But, fucked uh, up beyond all recognition. I tell you what is fucked up beyond all recognition. Their policy for laughter volume. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my name is Nick, and this is... Nat. <laughs> you're listening to Fan Club. What uh, is the first rule first of First rule of Fan Club is tell your friends about Fan Club. Second rule of Fan Club is please, please for the love of God. Please for the love of God tell your friends about Fan Club. Um, I'm still not going to uh, to uh, sink uh, to the depths that other podcasters do and beg people for five star reviews on oh, iTunes. Yeah. It's absolutely pathetic. But um, we have been informed that uh, we had, uh, last week, we had a paltry 42 uh, likes. Uh, 42 five-stars? 41. 41 five-star reviews. And then some fucking cunt went out of their way to give us a fucking four-star review. I mean, what you fucking said earlier, Nat, what you fucking said earlier, right, is absolutely fucking bang on, right? It's fucking... You go online and you either give it a fucking five or a none. Don't give it none. Right? Right? You go... Right? If you give it none, I mean, there's no... I mean, it's almost like you weren't there, like you're yeah. a ghost, right? Yeah. Because uh, there's no no-star... I mean, there's no no-star uh, review policy on iTunes. Um... Uh, and if and if you are giving it a four star, I think you've got to listen to at least fucking uh, one one show, haven't you? Uh, yeah. You've got to li- listen to at least no two shows. Sorry, is what I meant. You've got to listen to at least two shows, <laughs> haven't you? Because you've got to compare them. Because it might not be me and Nat's fault. It might be our guest. It might be their fault. It might just be the fact them. that we had an awful guest that was just <laughs> sort of like filling up your ears with nonsense. You know, don't blame us because you know our 
are booking uh, people uh, uh, fucked up. I mean, like, what's it? TripAdvisor you're talking about? Yeah, There's a new website out, and I'm, I'm going to look it up as we finish. Dot called TripAdvisor.com. Dot com, I think. It's called com, and you can give a zero-star review. I mean, and I can absolutely understand that. If you had an awful time on, uh, well, like holidays and holidays stuff. Holidays and that, that. Wow, if you've had an awful... I'm going to look into this. If you've had an awful time on holiday, then absolutely steer people well away. But if you've had a great time, let them know. But no one wants to know about your fucking uh, three... Star holiday. Your, your fucking three-star trip to fucking Alton Towers. You know, fuck... You know, stop wasting our time. Anyway, 68... 67 five-star reviews. 67 five-stars. But, uh... Well, I guess that even... Now there's more five-stars. That even goes to show the four-star one. It makes it seem even more foolish. Even more foolish and petty. Petty. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm going to switch on my... 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 My yeah. dial-up. And I'm going to... Uh, open up my laptop. And I'm going to put in my... Um... Uh... My password. And, you know... And then I'm going to fire up... Google. Google. And then I'm going to... I'm going to uh, go into uh, my iTunes. And then I'm going to... Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm going to get this off my chest. Yeah. Not quite five. Yeah. What else Drake has on his iTunes? Tom Petty. Yes. Because yes. <laughs> he's Petty. Petty. And uh, Billy Idol, because uh, a bit of a fan. Um, didn't quite understand where we were going. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to chip in. Uh, so good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, but um, um, still not enough. Uh, Brett Goldstein, as I say, has got something like 500, 500. five-star reviews. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fine show. But, um, <laughs> but he doesn't do it live. Uh, and he does a lot of, of editing. And uh, we do two hours a week now. So uh, come it's on. It's twice as long. Come on. It's twice as long. Twice, twice, twice the fun. Twice the twice the fun. Twice the long. Uh, tell your friends. Hashtag. <laughs> tell your friends. Hashtag. Tell your friends. Hashtag. Um, so um, I've been uh, doing uh, my show this week. Um, you have been. I think you stink at the Pleasants. Uh, first time in. Uh, it's uh, ten years. I did it in Edinburgh ten years ago, and then it's the first time I've done it since two thousand and eight. I did it uh, two thousand and ten. So I did it in a pub in 2010. So I haven't done it in eight years. We did it last night. Went very well. But I'm fucking exhausted because uh, I did, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. And <laughs> my agent came up to me yesterday and she goes, oh, it does look like a lot of work. And it's just like, <laughs> that's not like the greatest compliment that you're going to get. But you've I, done it again. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Darling, you've done it again. Um, I think that's uh, fan club. <laughs> club. Wow, just wow! I can't believe you did that. <laughs> uh, that was a Laurence Olivier thing, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Did we talk about that last week? Yeah, I think it was last week, was it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, she came over to go to play. It did look like a lot of work. <laughs> you go, yeah. And, but I always think that that's what um, that's what I, my uh, US uh, peers. P. My, uh, USB stick. My USB stick. My USP is uh, my unique selling point. <clears throat> is that uh, a lot of comedians uh, try and make it look easy. 
but I want people to know exactly how hard I find it. <laughs> so, so people come out of the sh my shows feeling more exhausted than I do. They go, fucking hell, that looked like a lot of hard work. And you go, yeah, I know, it is it hard. It does, I think it's it really hard. stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's stressful. I want to sweat on them, and I want them to be like, oh, God, that's disgusting. Yeah, yeah it is disgusting, isn't it? The depths that I've had to sink to in order to that's make a living, an honest living. Uh, it's not an honest living. We're all liars. Um, so um, uh, yeah, so uh, so I basically haven't I haven't watched it. I did one thing this week um, to talk about. I did it last Saturday, um, and and we record on. This is a Friday show, so basically now it's Friday again. I haven't done anything since last Saturday. We rehearsed all weekend, and then I forgot that I had uh, tickets to see ELO. Oh yeah, um, uh, and I went with my friend, uh, my friend from university, uh, Ollie McCormack. Hello, Ollie. He's not listening. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've told I've told my friends. <laughs> if they don't uh, listen. If it just falls on deaf ears. No, not deaf ears. But ears that work perfectly well. Oh, well, unbelievable! <laughs> they just they've just refused to uh, open their hearts to this kind of like I don't know what this is. It's a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> um, um, oh, I do enjoy this show. Um, I think I'm going to give it. Five, I'd have, I, don't, I think I might have stars? given it five stars. <laughs> I think I might. Have. I hope you didn't give it four, and it was you just. I tell you what is four ELO bloody oh, hell. Yeah. I went on TripAdvisor. I went on TripAdvisor.com. I went on to TripAdvisor. No, but I went on .co.uk slash oh, org. No. Um, uh, <laughs> dash eu um so uh, gov yeah. gov.com gov.co.uk.org um so um no i went to here yeah, no, it's brilliant I, I i was sort of like um so so we rehearsed uh at the pleasant here basically and then and then i remembered about late in the day like six o'clock that i had to go to elo at uh, Greenwich uh, in uh, the O2 arena. I was just thinking, ELO, Jeff Lynn's ELO mm -hmm. at the O2 arena. Bloody hell. Will he, will he Is there another operating ELO without Jeff Lynn? Um, no, but I, what I imagine, and I don't think so, but I don't know that much about ELO. All I know is that um, it's he's very much the... Uh, Claudio uh, Simonetti, Simonetti <laughs> of ELO. <laughs> of ELO. <laughs> so Jeff Lynn's, Jeff Lynn's ELO is, um, uh, I guess that the rest of ELO don't do it anymore. And it's just him doing his songs. I wonder what I've, I'm always fascinated by those stories, though, and how, uh, how those bands, whether they're all like each other or whether there's some sort of shady business going on. I think probably they just didn't want to do the same songs. Well, I don't know. He just came across as really kind of like down to earth and and normal. He looks like Chaz Hodges. Yeah, he does. And he's just like, he's he's sort of from the Midlands somewhere, isn't he? Yeah. He's just like, uh, yes. all right. All right, ducks. I've got some ELO songs coming up for your house. <laughs> is it like that? Yeah, it was. Great. It was like, well, it's a massive turnout. I've got to thank you all for being here. Anyway, there's Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. It was like, um, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like, yeah, it was really. But anyway, so I was on my way to Greenwich. I was thinking, oh god, this is a fucking ball ache going all the way to Greenwich on this. Yeah, normally, night. you like to work at Fubar, which is just around the corner from your house. I like to the just work around. Do you know what? I've had suddenly had a policy. I've got a friend uh, that was at um, that was at the show last night, and he said, uh, "Oh, we've got to meet up for uh, like some sort of Christmas dinner." 
Like before, you know, in December, we're having this thing, and I said, yeah, but only if it's in London, because I'm not travelling. I've done, I've, I've made that mistake before. Travelled out of, travelled out of mm. London. Ended up in some guest room. Mm. No thanks. Brexit means Brexit, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard Brexit. It is. Um, and there's no deal. No deal. Uh, what were we thinking? <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> oh, it's Lefty. Lefty's on the radio. <laughs> fucking, it just makes sense, doesn't it, not to fucking leave and fucking cut our own dicks off to spite our cunts. So, um, so anyway, hello. Uh, try not to <laughs> try not to let it bother you, but you know, what can we do? Uh, we're, we're drowning. So, um, uh, so hello. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. That's how he opened. Hello, hello, hello. Did he? No. Oh. No, he didn't. But I was on my way down to... This is a very... This isn't even a story. Uh, it's I, good. This is what we do. I was on my way down to fucking see ELO, Jeff Lindsay, fucking Jeff Lynn's fucking ELO, and I went down and I was like, what's this going to fucking be? Uh, and I, th- I just assumed that it's the sort of thing that he could do on a keyboard in the back room of a pub. Yeah. Right? And then I remembered they're called the Electric Light Orchestra. They are too. And, uh, and the fucking, I've never seen it, they're all rammed. The O2 Arena was absolutely fucking rammed and just full of ELO fans. And, uh, <laughs> Who'd have thought and, it? And, 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 and do you know, what does an ELO fan look like? I don't know, that's a good question. Very much like uh, you or I. Okay. Uh, only, obviously, older. Uh, <laughs> but um, ELO fans, yeah, and it was absolutely rammed. We were right at the back. Like right at the top of the arena, at the side, like like, but like right at the back. Yeah, yeah. Our backs were against the wall, right, right at the back. Oh, okay. Uh, and I was just like, these are amazing seats. We can see everyone, and I really did enjoy it. Now they had lasers, uh, electric lights, in other words, electric lights. But they had lasers, and the, the, and there was a fucking orchestra. There was like a thirty, no, probably not thirty, but like a twenty-piece orchestra that was on stage. Um, and the light show was incredible, and uh, there was like a there was a, um, he had like a screen on the floor that he was standing on that would kind of uh, show different things, you know, different carpets from to like be standing. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant! Um, I've got to be stood on some tellies. Did he say that when he's turning? I've got to be stood on some tellies, doing some songs from the allows. It was really good, and then. Um, but right, nothing really prepared me for how fucking batshit mental uh, everyone would go for uh, Mr. Blue Sky, right. right? And I sort of think that that's one of those songs that is overplayed. Right, they'll use it in uh, it's on ads and things. They'll yeah. use it in adverts and trailers, and I think they use they use it a lot in films. Mm. And you go, yeah, it's kind of like the say what you see. Kind of attitude to using music. Like, it's like the opening ten, ten, opening 45 minutes of Suicide Squad, where it's just like, uh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, we use that song. Oh, it's the devil. We'll play Sympathy for the Devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go, right. Um, so I think it's really overplayed. And I, li- I, I really like ELO, but my favourite is Bring Me Down. I think that is a oh, fucking yeah, yeah. wicked, that's a banging tune, right? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Mr. Blue Sky came on, and literally, we were right at the back, and the O2 arena is really, really, really steep. Mm-hmm. And uh, like to the point where you get vertigo because you stand up and you just assume, and you just think that you're going to fall. And, um, and if you fell, you would basically just like slide over everyone's heads and uh, plummet to your death. And I'm surprised that, that hasn't, more of that hasn't happened. 
Yeah, I don't know if any of it's happened. Can we look that up to see if anyone's... Died at the O2? Uh, well, I mean, we've all died at the O2. Uh, I haven't ever died at the O2. Not even for a charity gig. Unbelievable. So, uh, and do they, do you do those for free? Your ambition is to die at the O2. Well, I mean, I've died, I've died at the Apollo. So <laughs> why, why not? Why not up my game? Um, so, uh, uh, what I've got to say about the Apollo? I did the Apollo. You know, my uh, what, what's she writing? I mean, that's depressing. That's that's too depressing. We're we not gonna. <laughs> yeah. Three star on TripAdvisor. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we were uh, the, uh, the next week. Oh, it doesn't matter. You, you can't just read the screen while we're talking. Otherwise, it's just me talking into the void. That's what Fingy does. That's what Jeff Lane does. I'm just reading my screen under my neck, <laughs> watching my little tellies before I do one of my love songs. Uh, uh, I did a charity gig at the Apollo the week after I did live at the Apollo. Oh yeah, smashed it. Absolutely smashed it. Was it on film? No. <laughs> <laughs> did it? Did it? Did it to uh, did it to um, save the Asiatic lions? But it looked good on telly, didn't it? Oh, it looked amazing on telly. Best performance I've ever done. Looks like I'm absolutely enjoying. Oh my it. god! Stop doing. Jeff Lynne. Stop putting things Music up. is in Jeff's blood. That's better. Read that. Bit. His father was a great lover of, of classical, classical music. music. Don't move it while I'm reading it, Natalie. <laughs> And could play classical tunes with one finger. Was it like that? <laughs> <laughs> one finger stuck up at the man. People can't see that, can they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, right, the webcam. Yeah. Uh, if you want to watch this uh, live, this show live, uh, by all means. Uh, Jeff Lynn thinks the can't. Beatles song Love Me Do is especially horrible. Is that Jeff Lynn? That seems weird. He loves them, doesn't he? He loves the Beatles. Didn't he produce uh, Free as a Bird? Yeah, I think he did. And those Beatles anthologies, I think, were all Jeff Lynn. Anyway, Mr. Blue Sky comes on and fucking everyone, like everyone, uh, and none of them can dance. Do they do this? Yeah. With their arms? <laughs> they do like, they do like uh, hands on hips, yeah. kind of uh, hip wiggle. Hip wiggle, yeah. Uh, and Mr. Blue Sky comes on and it's like they've all taken ecstasy and they're at a rave <laughs> and you've got everyone, they've all got white hair and they're like banging, they're head banging, right? And it was like fucking, and I had never seen anything like it. People just like, just went, they went fucking nuts for it. And, uh, and I was just like, <laughs> and I was at the back going, bit overplayed and then you realise that you're the cunt in the room if you're at the O2 arena and you haven't spotted a cunt yet it's you <laughs> um, so uh, yeah I fucking yeah it was good anyway so I highly recommend but he sold out like three or four nights in a row there I can see that right but probably probably on the no. basis of that song but anyone plays the O2 now don't they yeah, like but it seems four like nights, everyone does. like four nights. Not like I've seen. I've seen the O2. No, not the O2. Maybe, but Wembley, uh, where they brought the curtain in to sort of like half half it yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But fucking, I've not seen. I've not seen anything there that was as rammed as that. It was crazy. I did, but you just ELO is not one of those bands that people talk about. No, you're right. And then it turns out that everyone likes ELO a little bit. And that's all you need, isn't it? I think I wasn't even really aware of ELO growing up, you know? It's all like, it all feels like ELO have emerged in the last sort of decade or so. Like, I, I just wasn't really familiar with those songs or anything. Um, yeah, I've got like, a, I've got a couple of ELO albums, or maybe I've got a double album, which is the greatest hits, I don't know. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I listen, I listen to it on vinyl. Well, I, I wish him good luck. 
Yeah, well, good for him. I mean, it's it's crazy how much he looks like Charles Hodges. I tell you, he's a big. Um, it's a, it's a, tell you, he's a big ELO fan. Charles uh, Hodges. Um, uh, no, David Trent. Is he? He, yeah, fuck okay. it, he fucking loves him, and he's. But David Trent's got w- weird kind of music taste because mm. he's really into like Slayer, mm. and then all of a sudden he'll go, yeah, but my favourite is uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners. Yeah, really? And he goes, yeah. And you're like, come on, Eileen. He goes, no, that's too mainstream. But if you listen to their early stuff, ah, oh. and you go, oh right. So I learned quite a lot of about music driving up and down the country with uh, Trent. Um, but uh, yeah, really, really, really into it. You know, but like, uh, it's crazy how similar some of his stuff is to Beatles harmonies. Right. Where it's kind of like he obviously loves it. It's weird that he doesn't like what was the, what Love Me Do. He's got quite <coughs> odd hair, isn't he? Does he still have that? Does he still have that sort of permed hair? If you want to know what Jeff Lynne looks like, Google it. <laughs> Google Charles Hodges, and it's that he looks exactly <laughs> like him. He looks exactly like him. Well, Chaz Hodges died, didn't he, recently? So he could he probably did. be a good replacement. Well, you just think... <coughs> yeah, you swap like for like, isn't it? Um, no, he's irreplaceable. Sure, I like Chaz Hodges. I, I like, love Chaz, and I like Chaz and Dave. Yeah. I think everyone likes Chaz and Dave. Sure, I think they're hard not to. And he seems like seemed like a very charming fella. Apparently, when they filmed... There's a, Ch- there's a Chaz and Dave thing they show often at Christmas, which is Chaz and Dave's Christmas Knees Up. I think there's also a corresponding album. And they show it at Christmas often with uh, on Channel Five, and uh, it's on every year, and it's filmed in like a sort of old East End pub, but it's not; it's all a set, and so all the studio audience all just sat on these tables as if they're watching the band playing in the pub. Uh, when they made it, apparently. It is all just a set, but they had things like the ladies and gents. But because of the audience that came in, they were giving them real booze. So apparently what would happen is the guys would like walk up while they're <coughs> filming, go to the toilets, realise they're just still in part of the studio, and then just piss all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just <laughs> Christmas knees up. Christmas knees up. There's just people like all the guys that work on it, all the crew are just like, oh, no. <laughs> so everyone's just boozing. Because <laughs> it's a Christmas knees up, why wouldn't you be? Yeah. Sitting along with Chaz and Dave, having a nice time. But they're all just getting up and just going, I've drunk too much now. It probably filmed for hours and hours. Yeah. So there's probably just absolutely a wash that. with piss on the floor. I've never seen that. I'd love to. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, it'll be on this it'll year. Be on this year. Uh, no doubt. We filmed uh, The Reluctant Landlord, uh, Romesh's sitcom that's coming out next week. Yeah, it's going to keep seeing. It starts on Tuesday, does it? I think the 30th. And um, <clears throat> that was obviously in a pub. It's filmed in a pub, but it was a set. It was a set in Shepparton. And you get to there, and in the middle of this huge sort of like, uh, it's like a warehouse. And in the middle of this huge warehouse, they've, they've built this pub set. And you're in the pub, and it looks exactly like a pub. Like it, but it's exactly like a pub, down to every single detail. Um, and Is it a studio sitcom, or is it a filmed <coughs> one without an audience? It is a single camera sitcom. Which means uh, it's not like uh, multi-camera is something like Mrs. Brown's Boys, where mm-hmm. you film uh, it live in front from multiple, of a live studio audience, in front of a live studio audience uh, with multiple cameras, um, and a single camera is when it's something like Uncle, where it's uh, you know you use one camera, but you don't. Sometimes you use two. Um, <clears throat> but if you use two cameras, you've got to hire a new, an, an entirely different, another camera crew. Oh dear. 
<coughs> so it's double the, it's double the cost. Okay. So which is why sometimes you have um, uh, so mainly at single cameras. I know that Uncle was really uh, low budget. So on the first series, we could only afford like two cameras like every so often, and it was a real treat those days because you'd get you'd get stuff done faster. There's one episode in uh, the first series where all the girls come round my. I tell you, and also the uh, all the girls were in my flat, and I think there was like what six girls or there was what Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> Live counting. I think there was like I think there was like six six characters or maybe seven, and um, you've got to do the entire scene, take after take. Um, if it's a wide, and also the di- the dinner t- the dinner scene in season in the third series when I'm on mushrooms. So I think there was like there was like fucking ten people around that table, and so you've got to film it in a wide, so you've got everyone in there, but you've got to do it because there's ten people and you're around a table. Or, or we were stood in a circle in the first series. You've got to do it from, everyone's, do it from everyone's angle so that you've got everyone in. And then you do... I've just sort of got some options when I'm getting <coughs> the editing room. And then, you do, and then you do two shots where <laughs> you've got two people in the shot or three people in the shot. And uh, they're sort of like mid, mid-level shots. And then that, you've got to do that. And then you've got to do uh, single shots of everyone. And it takes... You've got to do the entire scene from everyone's point of view. And fucking hell, I think the scene with the girls, I think that took something like nine hours to film. And it's like a minute long, two minutes oh, long. Yeah, yeah. And it took nine hours. It was absolutely... And I was allergic to the carpet in there because the, uh, in the house that we filmed in the first series was absolutely disgusting. They'd, they'd owned a lot of cats and they didn't have... Uh, and they hadn't cleaned it. And um, I'm allergic to if cats. Thanks very much. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the story behind it was, but it was weird. Um, but um, and the crew would walk in and out, and so you've got like 40, 30, 30 people churning up the carpets by just walking in it, and then the whole atmosphere was filled with cat hair from like decades. And uh, yeah, and so I was allergic to the thing, and I could, you know, I had to. Whenever we filmed in my living room, I had to kind of go in in short bursts. And then I'd have to come out again because my face was sort of like react to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't breathe. I was wheezing when in the house and stuff. It was, yeah, there's loads of horror stories about that house. But I, I don't know who owns it. Dead so. cat ghosts? No, mate. It was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> like, oh, the art department showed me photos of what it was like before they put it up. They found the bed, right? The bed um, in the bedroom of the thing. You know when you do snow angels? Yes. Yeah. So the bed... The mattress of the bed had like a, a, a brown snow angel all over it. <laughs> like it was, uh, but like from years and years of dirt and sweat. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Was it like? Uh, it's like one Norman of the Bates's mum's room. It was. It was fucking. You know. I think uh, they've obviously replaced the mattress and stuff. Uh, but uh, but it's like they. I mean the. I was so impressed with the... I mean, my favourite department generally is the art department. Because um, you go in and you get to sort of like look at all of the... I used to do A-level art. Mm. So you go in and you used to... And I always sort of like miss the fact that my... Uh, you know, when I do shows, like... Uh, well, I haven't done a play in ten years. So coming back to doing I Think You Stink, you kind of like you realise... Oh, yeah, I loved... I used to like make all the props and my parents were around on uh, Wednesday night and my mum was sewing... 
costumes and my dad was painting uh, umbrellas and stuff and it's kind of like um you know it's like a family business but um <coughs> really made me miss it but the art department is always my favorite department and you go in and you kind of like hang out with them and uh and they did a really amazing job with the pub on the reluctant landlord and they did a really amazing job with uh, my all of my flats and all of the stuff that we have in uncle i think i had three different flats in one of each series uh, but the first one, yeah, they took loads of photos of it. It was just an absolute horror show. Is that because your character is meant to be like, he's meant to be quite scruffy and quite. No, because they did it up. Right. So they had to do it up to make it look like someone who was really scruffy lived there. I don't think it does look that <laughs> scruffy. I think it looks really nice. But what they do is they put like, ch- you know, they, yeah, it looks. Uh, I look like a slob, but I look like a slob with taste right because all of the the walls are done you know it's not like i've fucked up the the painting of the walls and the well, hanging left a brown snow angel in your bed i mean fucking it was it was it wasn't so much brown it's like black like dirt it was like if if, if charlotte <laughs> yeah, sounds if charlotte's still got the photos i mean fuck it, no, it sounds horrible it was it's literally one of the most <laughs> haunting things i've ever seen in my entire life it's just it's, it's fucking, halloween this week so that's a good yeah, sure, but fucking hell. I mean, it was in such a fucking state, that place. But I'll tell you what, the... Oh, no, I won't. I'm probably, I'm probably not allowed to talk about that. I don't know. I think the first series was long enough ago. There was something that happened in the second series. That was, anyway. Um, uh, we haven't talked about what you've been up to. No. What have I been up to? Uh, well, um... Oh, but the, we had a pub. It's a pub set. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'd have toilets that said men's and women's. And, yeah. You'd have extras that were like going, I'm just going, oh, yeah. can I go to the toilet? And they'd go, to t- but it would be like, it doesn't go anywhere. There's no. And were they pissing on the floor? Like they were pissing all over the floor. <laughs> pissed all over the floor. Um, and it was, uh, it was fine. I'll tell you what I've been a fan of this week. Uh, the mugs that have been sent in for us. I wanted to mention. Oh, yeah, we've got some mugs. We've got some fan mugs. That's been sent in by, well, it's either Sandra or Sandy. Uh, we know from a Twitter Twitter name who has revealed that she sent us some mugs and they're mugs that we've got like because we've mentioned on the show before that we haven't got our own foobar mugs we haven't got our own foobar mugs we don't mention it a lot we don't but uh, we d- uh, it has been brought up and I think for the keen listeners yeah uh, the fan club fans the, the actual fans of fan club as opposed to the people that give us four stars four or something stars. casuals casuals Tom um, Petty that <laughs> um, <laughs> we've been given mugs. These are well, I guess they're technically they're unofficial Fubar mugs because they've been made or uh, by someone's fair hands rather than by the official Fubar things. But they're essentially our proper mugs, and I've got my name on a mug now. There's Nat writ large across it. Nat Fan Club. Yeah. Tell your friends the Fubar logo, which is almost we didn't need the Fubar logo because we've got our own mugs now. Um, yeah, and also um, uh, they're, I think they're better than the official food bar mugs. Yeah, the the names better. are a lot smaller, and I, I, I think I'm very grateful for these mugs. And I think that I don't know, it must have taken quite a while f- for to sort of organise well, all the stuff. Do, must have taken must have taken a couple of days to actually organise all of that yeah, stuff get and the find the logos and, and stuff. To the people that make the mugs but two days, you know, it's, uh, two days is a lot faster than uh, fucking six months, six isn't months it? Within, six yeah. months of being. Well, it's six months plus, Nick, because we still haven't. I mean, it's we, not like they're here today. We're doing two hours now for the same cost as mm. uh, as one hour. Mm. And uh, what? We're still on probation? Fucking hell. I think last week I had a mug that said guest written on it. Guest. Sometimes I have a Sean 
Sean Walsh his mug famous Sean Walsh double M from the papers he's sometimes on my mug never have one that says no. I've got one now that says no Go on. Mug. Hand Go on now that says no what have you had in that today I had a tea and a they're actually quite nice today because they've got some uh, ginger nut biscuits as well I've had a dip of the you know what I'm a fan of what are you a fan of mate? ginger nut biscuits they'd be kind of sorry fucking hell they're good aren't they they are good. they're my favourite biscuit I could eat in my days. I mean, I've got biscuit biscuit addiction. Well, the bad thing is, Nick, which makes it worse, <coughs> is that I'd say they're not my favourite biscuit, but you can't have biscuits till four o'clock, can you? No, that's, tr- that's true, but I'm not remotely tempted. Oh, good. I'm not like, oh, I need a biscuit. I'm just like, I just... No, I can talk about the fact that I like ginger nut biscuits without needing to eat a ginger nut. Mm. Uh, i tell you what I don't like. Fucking Jaffa Cakes. Nick and Nat's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what have you been up to this week? Do you know what? I, uh, well, I'll tell you, I've seen a couple of films. I saw the film The Commuter with Liam Neeson. With Liam Neeson. And yes. I had no expectations of it. And I, I really enjoyed it. And yeah. I didn't think I would at all. It's, uh, I, um, hmm, uh, it feels like a proper modern age thriller with things like lots of mobile phones. That's normally where things fall down, don't they, plot-wise now? Well, you just go, you'd just call yeah, yeah, these yeah. people, wouldn't you, and say, this is what's happening. Yeah. And it was very, a lot of it was over the top and things, but it still, it sort of used that quite well and had that sort of, it felt like, sure. And I couldn't really pick holes in it. Yeah. And I it, like Liam Nathan. Yeah, I think I like him more than I thought I did. Oh, I really? sort of, I sort of, I think I think of him as quite a sort of silly, I think that sort of his, his sort of post-taken career almost makes me think of him as being quite a sort of funny you know, sort of quite a silly actor, and he sort of just does his voice, doesn't he? And he's he seems like he's created this sort of character. If you now. look at his career, then really Schindler's List is a blip on it. Sure, but I, he didn't meet. It's not like he's like oh, Mister Serious. That made, you know, he, before that he made um, High Spirits, uh, and then he made Dark Man. Yeah, and they're fucking silly films. And yeah, then he, he, after Darkman, he made uh, Schindler's List, and then he went on to sort of like do but um, it was an fucking there. Taken, and then the A Team, and the Voice of Aslan. It seems now he does seem to be taking on a lot of a lot of work, doesn't he? You I think, think that he's just. His, I think his career picked up. Mm. I think that that's it. I think right in the early days, he hadn't done a lot. I think post Schindler's List, it did feel like he was he was entering that realm as being like a, a sort of very serious actor in movie. And I remember when when he was announced for um, Phantom Menace, being like, "Oh my God, they've got Liam Neeson in a Star Wars film!" And thinking that seemed like a really big deal. Like, oh wow, I'm surprised he'd do that. And I remember thinking of him then as a much more kind of serious actor. No, I don't think he's. I don't think. I think that it's. I don't think he is. I don't think he's ever been. I think that it was. Um, but Schindler's List is probably the most famous thing, wouldn't you say? Mm. But um, yeah, it's taken. Do, I think now. I really maybe taken. Yeah, but I really do fucking love Dark Man. That's one of my favourites. Yeah, it's I funny. don't. And it's weird. I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about who like my favourite director was, and um, and it, it's not Sam Raimi, but I did. Uh, 
but I do love. He's made some of my favourite films, mm. but he's so um, inconsistent, and I don't really like. I mean, I think probably Spider-Man Two is the best out of the three, but I don't really love the Spider-Man films. And um, a Simple Plan was good, great movie, but I haven't watched it over and over again. And if I was going to watch a Snowbound thriller, it would be Fargo. <laughs> um, and uh, what's the other one that he made? With Keanu Reeves in The Gift. Oh, The Gift, yeah. And, so um, I, that wasn't very good. And then, but then when he, but like Evil Dead trilogy, Army of Darkness is the UK cut. UK cut of Army of Darkness is my favourite film. But then the director's cut, I think, is almost unwatchable. Um, and uh, Dark Man, I just it's one of those films where you just go, it's so silly and inventive and great. But it's a superhero movie as well, isn't it? Before that's another one that's essentially like a superhero. Movie. Well, they got Danny Elfman in as well to do the music, mm. so um, uh, so it was kind of like post Batman. It was before I think it was nineteen ninety, so it's before yeah. Army of Darkness. Um, and it's really annoying because they wanted Bruce Campbell. Oh, have you ever seen Crime Wave? Yes, yeah, I have. That's a great movie. Crime yeah. Wave is um, well, it's it's good and it's awful. There Isn't is, that? Is it set in Hudsucker? Is it one of those? Yeah, like, well, so the Coen brothers wrote um, uh, Crime Wave with Sam Raimi, and then Sam Raimi wrote the Hudsucker Proxy with the Coen brothers. Right, that's right. Yeah. And um, so, and Sam Raimi's got a cameo in Hudsucker Proxy, and Bruce Campbell's in it, and uh, Joel Cohen did the sound editing. I think it was the sound editing of uh, of Evil Dead. So it's kind of like they're all they're all the same gang, mm. and Bruce Campbell gets cameos in. Uh, Coen Brothers films but he's always uh, I think he's sort of a bit of a curse for him because uh, um, uh, so he was in Bruce Campbell was in Hudsucker Proxy which was their biggest uh, flop yeah yeah and uh, the best film yeah I love it I think it's absolutely their best film it, 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 it's one Raisin of Arizona is my favourite but I do love Hudsucker Proxy um, I like I really like Raisin Arizona but if you watch Raisin Arizona that's so influenced by Sam Raimi they do like yeah. they use the same exact shots as well they put like a, a, a camera on a motorbike and they're kind mm. of yeah very much so yeah. I love it Nicholas Cage is great in it Holly Hunter's great in it John Goodman um, it's uh, yeah really I do love Raisin Arizona but um, early Coen Brothers you know uh, before pre Lady Killers, uh, but then Lady Killers. Bruce Campbell's in Lady Killers, terrible film. Terrible Bruce Campbell, Campbell's in Intolerable Cruelty, terrible film. Uh, Bruce Campbell is in uh, has um, they take an old uh, soap opera that Bruce Campbell was in uh, and play that in Fargo as kind of like a little joke. Oh, uh, when, footage from the uh, he was in a, he was in a soap opera when uh, when William H Macy's wife has got a bag over her head yeah. and they stick her in front of the TV and I think the TV's like fuzzy and it's coming in and out uh, it's Bruce Campbell on the TV oh. and that's from an old but that doesn't count because it's not an actual cameo he didn't sure, turn they up used. they just use him and so maybe when he's but Bruce Campbell uh, oh, fucking hell um, had like a proxy such a good I couldn't believe you know, Bruce Campbell's in a film with Paul Newman. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Um, I, I, I was really excited about The Lady Killers before it came out. I couldn't see how it could be a bad film. Yeah. I thought ev the ferry, everything about it. I love the, uh, the original Lady Killers. That's one of my favourite movies. And I thought doing it with uh, Tom Hanks in the sort of Deep South was like perfect. What an absolutely kind of tacked on perfect idea for a film yeah and when you watch it it's just not it's not even that it's just you watching it going i don't know how this is how this doesn't work yeah um one of the well the thing about um the thing about the lady killers was that uh, barry sonnenfeld was going to direct it and the coen brothers mum died uh around that time the coen mother 
Yeah, and uh, and they needed a job. They they wanted to work basically. Right. And um, I think did they write the script or did someone else write the script? I thought they wrote the script. I think they wrote the script for Barry Sonnenfeld, and uh, then Barry Sonnenfeld sort of like gave it back to them because they wanted to do a job first, and so they just whacked that out, and then they whacked out uh, Intolerable Cruelty, and I think that must have been a script that they had in development, because they always got like several scripts in development, and then they'll put they'll finish a script and put it in a drawer, yeah, yeah. and then they would start another script and then put that in a drawer, and they'll start another script, and put that in a drawer, and then they'll go back to the first script and rewrite that, and then, um, and. Um, uh, yeah, so they basically did it for work. So um, I, I can, I, I, I'm sympathetic towards why the Lady Killers is such a shit film, but um, it is a shit film. Mm. Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, um, why are we talking about that? Sam Raimi, Liam Neeson. Yes, where we get to the commuter. Oh, uh, dark, That's fan club. <laughs> so you were talking about the commuter. Oh yeah, no. I was just saying it, it, it sort of surprised me. I wasn't expecting anything from it. It's obviously all set in the UK. Cause it's got lots of, or filmed in the UK, sorry. Cause it's got lots of British actors playing Americans in it. Right. But I really, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I was like, and it really took me by surprise. I'd recommend it to people. Yeah. Uh, well, my parents get those like um, cardboard. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's free giveaway. Free free DVDs that you get on the in the newspaper and stuff. My dad works at Oxfam Books and. Um, and I guess people donate them. Yeah, it's just like you can't sell a free <laughs> DVD off the mirror. Um, and um, uh, so, so they basically end up with a bunch of them. They've got they they've got a, a sheet in Brittany, and um, so it's like a holiday home. And they have like a box of these cardboard DVDs out there, and there's always sort of like. Liam Neeson straight to DVD <laughs> ones I can't remember which one I watched I watched one where um, he was in some sort of accident and then he got plastic surgery and then he woke up to be like Liam Neeson and he couldn't work anything out uh, and it was like this it's like a reverse dark man it was uh, it was like it was like really it was like um, well it was rubbish <laughs> and that was that was a hard but it was like I'd give it a go because it was Liam Neeson I like him I like him now I've, I've, he's, he's grown on me he's, he's got a nice uh a nice thing about him, I think. I think I should give him another go. But he's not my favourite. Do you know what I mean? But he's almost like—I wouldn't say he's like Denzel Washington, but like I would sit down and watch Denzel Washington no matter what because I just think he's solid, and he's really great. But I think Denzel Washington is probably a little bit of a higher caliber than mm. Liam Neeson. But I would watch any Liam Neeson, any old shit that Liam Neeson is. Well, in. I guess Liam Neeson must have started as a very uh, probably proper. Maybe RSC actor or something? I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah, I don't he's know done background. mainly, I mean, I don't yeah, know where right. he's done mainly schlock. Mm. Uh, action film. Everyone's like, oh, bloody hell, Liam Neeson started. Get out of 1993. It's not, he's <laughs> not doing Schindler's List anymore. He did it once. <laughs> Everything else and his thing. Isn't he in something like, isn't he in The Long Good Friday or something? He's in one of those he's films. He's not in Long Good Friday. He's in one of those films from, uh, from like the early 80s. 80s. And, uh, but mainly what he's done is kind of B-movies and action stuff. So, um, right. all right, we've got a guest now. We've got, it's sort of almost like a new uh, feature of sorts. And we thought we'd have a phone guest on, but we thought we'd have a phone guest who was themselves a fan of something. So, um, we're going to have a go. I'm going to do it by myself today. I'm going to uh, yeah. whack up the volume on our guest's telephone and hopefully he won't sound like uh, a robot because um, 
because normally we have problems. So if that is the case, Natalie, I want you to back us up and I want you to jump straight in and help us with this. Okay, so uh, on the phone we have uh, James Hyman, the world's largest collection, uh, who, who's got the world's largest collection of magazines. Hello, James, are you there? I'm here, how are you doing? Oh, hello. hello. It worked. First it time. works, it worked. I did it. <laughs> this is the first time I've been able to uh, handle the controls myself, James. How are you, James? I might have a bit of echo. Hold on, there was a little bit of echo. I can hear myself. Oh, you can hear yourself. Oh, yeah. Um, Echoing back. Oh, is that because if you've got the radio on? No. Oh, well. Um, you oh, might have a little. Please come know. in. Have we got a thing? Uh, I don't know. Oh, God. I mean, this isn't radio. Um, <laughs> it is technically radio. It is radio. technically radio. Hello, James. Can you hear yourself now? Can I hear myself now? Natalie, she's done a good job now. No, she's done a great job. Right. Brilliant. Well done. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, so you have the world's largest collection of magazines. Is that correct? I do indeed. For yeah, I do. Oh, hold on. I think I'm hearing myself again, or maybe I'm hearing voices. No, it's all good. All good. Let's <laughs> let's crack on. No, um, I do. That is one of the things that I have achieved: the world's largest collection of magazines in the Guinness Book of Records from August 2012. Yeah, it's always been a kind of thing in my life: collecting magazines, pop culture stuff. So you know, films, music, fashion, technology, sport. It was always a thread in everything I did. I worked at MTV for about. 12 years the first job there was being a script writer so i had to fill airtime you know before internet before podcast before this amazing technology took over all of us you had to be a bit old school and i had to fill airtime of presenters talking about things saying coming up now is a new video by george michael or madonna and where would you get the information from of course it was magazines right so i just collected this stuff and used it in a lot of other tv production and presenting stuff i did and you know it hit a point where it turned into an obsession. It still is an obsession. Um, it got into the Guinness Book of Records, and the plan is really to digitize it and make it accessible to the world. So you could like a Spotify for magazines. That would be, for me, I'm sure millions of others, it would be a phenomenal resource. How many magazines have you got? So uh, a current tally, stop counting because it's just too difficult because we're getting donations nearly every day from kind people, um, probably about 150,000 magazines at the moment. Where do you keep them? In a lovely warehouse in Woolwich. <laughs> is, it, is that near? Shout out to the Stockroom. Big shout out to the Stockroom. They're an amazing uh, crew down there. And it's, it's a lovely place. It's actually a kind of the final resting place for magazines, right? say, but also lots of media stored there. So films, TV, adverts. It's, a lo- it's in good hands with all the other media that is stored there. How many people work there with you trying to keep track of them there? So uh, there's, how'd again, ca- more shout-outs. How'd, how'd you categorise them? Yeah. Is, uh, is it so, yeah, basically, what we've done is, again, digitising will make this amazing because it'll make it far easier to access. But what we did was use a basic inventory, so literally name of magazine, brief description of the magazine, how many issues of that magazine I've got, when the mag started, has the mag defunct, does the British Library have it, does it have a website? Just some basic sort of inventory of what I have. It's not like... Page 64 has got Kylie Minogue advert, blah, blah, blah. That will come from the digitisation. So when you say the British Library don't have them, because they keep a copy of every book published. Well, they, they do. They do. But however, we did a little, um, you know, when we were doing this whole thing, and shout out again to Tori and Alexia, Sophie, who's been everyone actually supported this, but Tori and Alexia on a day-to-day basis. Um, what we did, we looked, we checked with uh, what the British Library had, because you can see online what the British Library have. And 55% of our titles, the British Library didn't have. And that's probably 
the reason for that is things like very rare, and you can imagine like, let's say, crazy punk zines that came out, that, you know, people who made those probably didn't think that, literally it's a law, I think when you publish something, you are supposed to give a copy to the British Library. Yeah, I think it's, so a lot of it's got stuff, an ISBN number. Correct, correct. I think even without ISBNs as well, I think just literally you should <clears throat> donate a copy to them. And a lot of people probably didn't think of, you know, they had to do this or bothered doing it. Because your books will start, your ISBN number will start with a 978 number, whereas I think a magazine or periodical often starts with 977. Is that right? Oh, you're very good. You're yes. very good. Yes. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you actually just know that? No. Yeah. That's, mad that's very clever. <laughs> but what about, are you sure that's the same for American magazines? I'm, I'm not looking sure at, book at now. all. I'm not sure. Here, here we go. I, I have many adventures. Men's Adventures on Tashin, I'm looking here, and it is, yeah, 97A, although ISBN 38, anyway. Yeah, I, I believe you. I know I'll, the, I'll I know the book you're talking about, Men's Adventure Magazine's covers. Correct, yeah, Tashin. 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 What a brand, Tashin. Yeah. Stuff. They're so expensive, though. They get cheap. They are. They well, you can get the, little, you, get, you get the little pocket-sized ones that come out after, but, you know, if you want to be proper and yeah. original, yeah, you do need the first editions. But Tashin is game over i like a big book i like getting a big book uh yep. and then putting it on my bookshelf and never reading it uh, <laughs> i've got so many i'm the same I've got so i just many. send you a picture i just stare at my bookshelf <laughs> of just books i hardly ever read them and flick through them so proud so proud of my book collection of big books uh but yeah they're all unopened <laughs> um so when you started collecting magazines was it just a hobby then was it just something you liked doing just for fun or did you always have this in mind it's a good. It's a good question. I don't. I don't think I always had it at mind from the beginning. I, I. What it is is, I think. I guess you guys sound like you're the same. You know, I treasured what I had as a physical object, whether it was records, CDs, comics, books, yeah. magazines. I loved them, and I didn't want to just. I didn't want to just dispose of them quickly. I like. I remember when it was early smash hits in the eighties. You know, you had these things, and they sort of built up, and you thought, no, I want to hold on to these. It, I think the collecting thing definitely came. Um, actually, it was. Yeah, it was around about the time when I started working for MTV and I would just pile all this stuff into crates and send it off into storage because I didn't have enough space for it. But it was that, being a scriptwriter, when I had, I did have one little epiphany moment of, you know, going through Loot. Do you remember Loot magazine? Oh, where yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, anything you needed, a house, a flat, a bike, whatever. It was a brilliant magazine. Crazy. Um, that's a bit, that's another conversation. But I found an amazing... Um, amount of, you know, people were selling all their collections of Q, Empire, all these magazines. Yeah. And when I would have, you know, you could get them really cheaply, someone was like chucking them out or emigrating and you get a whole set of Q and you realise there was a wealth of information in that. And again, going back to the MTV thing, you know, if there was Prince Weekend, Madonna Weekend, you had to keep writing about Madonna. Well, you just take a great interview out of Rolling Stone or Q and there was so much meat in it. So yeah. that was when I thought, keep these things definitely there's value in them but do not chuck them away yeah oh, absolutely it's, it's pre-internet isn't it so it kind of yeah like, it only exists in paper and people so, aren't other people i guess themselves aren't archiving them right the the publishers of the magazines don't not really themselves. no exactly they're not a lot of them are not i mean many a time a lot of publishers have come to me and said we're missing these issues we're missing that have you got this have you got that they, they, they do not keep thorough archives you know there's not many people who actually do and keep it in a good good way as well no so you do keep them, but you, you lend it out as well, don't you? You lend out magazines and things. Like so, yeah, we get a lot of inquiries. We lend them for, um, they've been on lots of TV. You know, again, uh, you'll, if you watch good documentaries on television, you know, often they need to refer to something that was in a magazine or have a picture of something. 
Um, so we, we loan them, we do research, lots of brands come to us and they say, look, we need to look at, let's I don't know, Ray-Bans in the 50s, or I'm doing a documentary on the Beatles, Apple production company. There's so many things, sport, we just had one yesterday for a very, very famous sports personality and they need all the stuff on this guy and his life. You know, again, because through magazines, it's a, it's a, it's a great texture um, showing everything through magazines. Yeah, so you have like so if you're lending them out as well, do you also try and keep them in sort of pristine mint condition, or is that not at all? You just you want to have them as an archive that people can use and access. I think yeah, I do we do our best to keep them in pristine condition. I do my best to you know make sure they're not ripped and not like not major OCD levels of everyone's bagged up. I mean that would just drive me nuts. They right. are they're kept pretty well. They're kept very well in in, in in a good environment, and yeah, try and keep them. But I think again. Wanting to do the digital is good, but I think it is amazing to have a physical object. You know, people, I do think we are in a interesting world. Everything, yeah, is all digital. Digital is digital, but physical has that thing too. You know, go to the so many museums and exhibitions. I went to the opening of that Peanuts, Charlie Brown thing, really oh, cool, yes, amazing yeah. thing at Somerset House. Loads of paper, comics, things from magazines. It wasn't digital, it was literally a great issue of Life magazine or Time magazine with Schultz or Snoopy on the front. You know, there was a, the Design Museum had this uh, exhibition on California and the design and how important, you know, California and San Francisco was in design. You know, half that exhibition was like counterculture magazines, Wired and this one. Magazine, you know, they were an artifact. They are very important as a physical thing as much as they are digital. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I totally get you. Um, and that's what I think is like those kind of books, those coffee table books will be exactly the ones that I think will continue beyond the kind of advent of Kindles and things because people like exactly. to have in front of you. Yeah. I, I mean, you know what I mean? Do, 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 you guys, do you guys, do you not get sick of just screen, 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 having it all digitally? Yeah, I mean, I, with music, um, it's so easy to download, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's kind of yeah. like, um, uh, I've, you know, I'll buy an album off iTunes and then um, I'll, I'll either change my device or I'll be on to, uh, I'll get a new computer. And uh, I've got, like, I bought an Alice Cooper album online and it had some bonus tracks. And I haven't been able to listen to those bonus tracks for like 10 years because, uh, because I, checked, I got a new computer and it didn't, it didn't follow over. And also, I've just bought loads of, al I bought loads of albums on iTunes that I've just never listened to because yeah. what's the point? But if you've got a record, it's sitting there looking at you and you go, okay, right, I'm going to put that on. Or if it's a C. If it's a CD, but also with books, I don't. I, I like having a physical book to, uh, to carry around with me. You uh, can exactly. You you know, downtime. You're on the tube. You're travelling somewhere on the bog. Whatever. You have something physical. And the other thing, it's pretty obvious. I mean, print and the written word has been around for thousands of years. You know, a lot of these new media's, even cinema. What cinema's just over a hundred years. The mm -hmm. visual flickering images. What a hundred. I don't know the exact. But you know, the, 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 this the, the the writing and that whole that is being around a long, long time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but also, uh, um, in terms of uh, collecting stuff obsessively, it's, um, mm -hmm. when you started collecting, it would it must have... There must have been, like, a tipping point where... Because, for instance, so I've got... Um, I've got, like... I think I've got all of the Studio Ghibli... Ghibli? Ghibli? I think it's Ghibli. I've got all the Studio Ghibli uh, films on DVD or Blu-ray. And, and, and that was a thing where it was just like, oh, I've got, f f I, I, you know, I end up with five of them. 
over time and they've got numbers on the spine and then you go mm. well fuck it I might as well just get them all and so <laughs> then it was a thing where I'd sort of like go out and collect and same with Dario Argento where I kind of like ended, I, you know over time I had like three or four Dario Argento films and then it's just like well right I'm just going to get all of them and yeah. then I'd go yeah, you've got, listen, you, you've got the collecting bug I mean it, it, you can I need to curb it a bit I used to do like even two of every magazine one to keep immaculate and one to keep so people could read it and use it I mean Guy, actually, fresh in my memory last night, I've never seen it in full. You guys have probably seen it, The Warriors. Oh, yeah. Uh, quick, yeah, yeah. Shout, yeah quick shout out to John Viner. But here's another guy. He, he's obsessed with this film. He'll have, I don't know, 50 versions of that film on DVD, Laserdisc, VHS, Greek VHS, yeah. cinema <laughs> prints. The, 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 you know, if you are into something and you're, dare I say, you know, obsessive, OCD, whatever, I mean, maybe I'm using OCD in the wrong context, not in its true meaning, but there must be a degree of voting. You, you collect. You need it. You need to complete. Yeah. Hunter-gathering, you know, cavemen. You That's hunt, basically you what this show is, I think. It's yeah. about being a fan of something or being enthusiastic about something. So that's what that is. Um, it's been really nice yeah. talking to you, James. So we've got a wrap Thank up. you. But um, uh, thank you thank you for uh, talking to us, and maybe we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again. Thank you very Thanks, much. Guys. Cheers. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. That, uh, now we've got to play a song. Uh, what's your song? Uh, I've got a few up. Have I? Uh, maybe Just play- say one song. Do do hounds of love. Nick and Nat's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're doing it! We're doing it! <laughs> uh, um, uh, right, we're, we're back after we're, we're into our second hour. The second uh, hour we're, of the show. we're joined in the studio uh, by uh, uh, Matthew Holness. Hello. 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 Uh, is it Matt or Matthew? It, either or. Oh, really good. Yep. You're really laid back about that. That's yep, great. that's fine. Um, <laughs> really, uh, really big fan of yours. Um, uh, I really, uh, when I was younger, uh, loved uh, Garth Marenghi's Start Place. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, recently I bought a collection of short films and I saw your uh, A Gun for George. That's right, yeah. Uh, which is great. Uh, and uh, you've just uh, written and directed uh, your... Is it your first feature First feature, film? yeah, with yeah. a horror you, film. Because you've been making short films for a while, haven't you? Yeah, I've made, well, I've made three. So I've made, uh, Gun for George was the uh, first one. And then I made a, a film called The Snipist for Sky Arts. Mm-hmm. And I also made a, a, a short comedy film called Smutch for, for Sky Arts as well. Oh, Smutch, I've not seen that. Yeah, yeah. I saw the other two this week. I'd seen A Gun for George, I think it'd be one of those things where I never knew where it was on, but it often, in probably quite an appropriate way, yeah. seemed to show up late at night. And you'd yes, go, yeah. And you'd sort of catch odd five minutes of it here and there and go oh, what was that I want yeah to see that that's from the good game. that's the perfect way to, yeah, to catch things it feels I think. like it and what was the kind of influence on that uh, gun for george well that was um I, would, you know, I guess growing up with with shows like the sweeney that kind of thing it was started out being a it was intended to be a kind of parody in a similar way to dark place did for horror it was supposed to be a kind of parody of yeah uh crime um dramas that sort of thing but actually during the filming of it it became something far more serious really so yeah. <laughs> and that wasn't it wasn't meant to be like that until <laughs> till started filming and then it then yeah then it became something else yeah it wasn't as light no certainly wasn't no but it yeah. does feel like that seems like a halfway house that movie between yeah. what sort of something like Garth Marenghi and the kind of films you're making now right? so the film we didn't say what the title of the film was oh the sorry film, yes. the, <laughs> film got, the, f- the film that is uh, when is it out it's out today it's out today is it out today the film is Possum yes yeah. um, now I haven't seen it because okay. we got a screener and uh, we've had a screener in the past and I don't like watching films on a laptop but I am going to go and see it at the cinema but I'm yeah 
Great. I saw it. Right. You've seen it. And it isn't at all. There's nothing. It's it's definitely like a proper psychological thriller. Yes. Yeah. There are no jokes. No, nothing, nothing funny or or, or enjoyable so. in it. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's it's about as as dark and bleak as it gets. Really. When I was reading about it, it says this. You can sort of see there's a real influence of kind of 70s films on it from the. Like the title card is the first yeah, thing that kind yeah. of shows up, and you go, "Oh, here we go." Yes, I mean it, it's partly the intention because the character um, hasn't moved on from that period in their life oh, when yeah. they were younger. So, and because we, you know, the audience is watching the events of the film through the character's point of view, everything is kind of coloured by his his memories of that era. So, so it's it's less an exercise in retro nostalgia, but more about you know that's psychologically where. where where he is and where he's you know that's where he's trapped still there's definitely bits of that it does sort of but it has a feel of something like a public information film, mm. those kind of things doesn't it has that sort of that's right well they used to put those out you know between ch- children's programs when i grew up so <laughs> what the, were, the uh, don't play on train lines yeah, and stuff. yeah. They yeah. Were horrific as well yeah 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 i mean they they and you know used to see them so so often and they you know and they just stuck in you know my my mind and and in m- millions of other children that grew mm. up at that time so you know they were they were part of the wallpaper so yeah the film this possum is very much drawing on that drawing on that kind of collective memory of of these these rather traumatic and harrowing films that we you know was was really our first introduction to the adult world yeah, in many yeah. Ways. yeah. i yeah. was born in 79 you were in 1980 but I, well, I sort of grew up with those as well i think yeah. there's a funny <clears> thing that seems to be like people born within this sort of stretch of like 10 or 20 years almost saw exactly the same yeah I mean, <laughs> they just they played them over and over and, and weirdly i mean i you know i was i was born mid 70s and and i grew up in the 80s but oddly enough i'm i'm sort of attached to the 70s because they they were re- repeating all the 70s yeah. programs in the 80s so i did watch things like the sweeney watch the professionals mm-hmm. all those kinds of things watch what so, crappens would like to think it's what was that what was that what was that Ghost in the Machine. Okay. Um. <laughs> that was terrifying. <laughs> well, it is our Halloween special. Well, there we are. So we've now it's, got actual ghosts. Is it a Halloween special? I don't think it's a Halloween no, special. No, we, we thought I'd just say it's it was. A, well, I've no idea what happened. It's my Halloween special anyway. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. So well, if this was... It. If this was a 70s uh, sort of spooky film set in a radio studio, that would be the first thing that would happen. That's right. That's the, You'd just get a little yeah. tiny bit, and as it yeah. would go on, it would escalate. That's it. We're not getting out of here. No. Sure. The, this would go dark, the screen, yeah. you wouldn't see the studio. Here's the thing about it. I d- I d- I do, I'm doing a show which is sort of like a horror parody um, on uh, in The Pleasance Next Door. Oh, yes. And yeah. It was our opening night last night. And when we started, we you know we'd been we'd we'd, we'd rehearsed all week and we put all the props and all the costumes. We got everything everything ready, and uh, and it's like a musical thing. And just as it started, we were all about to go on stage, and uh, the music starts, and we start going on stage, and then the fucking uh, pub quiz from downstairs comes <laughs> over our radio mics. <laughs> and it was just like we've got all of that this haze in the air and all the lighting and everything, and then all of a sudden it's like question seven, which Tom Hanks film? <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps it added an extra layer or something. There's probably people there that thought, oh, that was quite clever. Yeah, someone said, I thought it was really good because it made it feel really kind of like unnerving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, uh, <laughs> he only does Thursdays, though, <laughs> the pub quiz. Anyway, um, so uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about <laughs> public information films. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I was just saying that sort of, it's got that sort of tone of it. And I guess also like those BBC ghost stories as well. I'm yeah. sort of thinking like the, well, there, there's. Uh, Warning to the Curious 
that one was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, all those Lawrence Gordon Clark films, the Ghost Toys Christmas. So you've got the Signalman, um, and you've also also the Jonathan Miller one, um, Whistle and oh, I'll yeah, Come yeah. to You, which was which was earlier. I think it was about ten years before. Those, was it but filmed in Norfolk? Possum. Uh, Possum was, yeah. So film. it's sort of similar. That Suffolk, yeah, I think, yeah. Right, yes. I think they, I think they use some locations in Norfolk. So yeah, they kind of shot in the same. That was kind of partly the, 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 you know, that informed the decision to shoot in Norfolk to a certain extent because I wanted to capture the feel of those. Yeah, those, that's uh, what it kind of stories. reminds me of. Those kind of. Um the kind of scenery there just yeah. feels very kind of similar. Or yeah, it's great. It's very really flat and strange and atmospheric. Yeah. And what's this about? Uh, it's about Jimmy Savile. It's not about Jimmy Savile. It's a. It's really about. Um, uh, it's. I guess it's about that. It is certainly about that monster. It's certainly about you know um, the the horror of child molesters, child abductors, and it's not something that is really um, the topic for horror films that much. And, and oddly enough, you, it's been covered an awful lot in crime dramas. And you know, pick any crime yeah, drama yeah, yeah. on the TV. That's that's you know more often than not the plot. That's you know th- that's the crime that's being investigated. But I think it's got to a point where it's so common in, in crime dramas that it's almost part, well partly it's cliche now. And two, I guess there's um, an inbuilt sense of uh, there's almost a just that inbuilt sense that you know the forces of good the forces of law and justice are there they're going to you know take they're going to confront and and you know destroy the evil that that we're seeing in those in those crime narratives and i think that horror doesn't really do that because there isn't that inbuilt sense of of justice prevailing and i think that was what drew me to this because i think you know if the horror film sh- i think should be able to confront the ultimate monster that you know the the, ho- the monsters that are in every street you know every town has a monster of this kind um and it felt to me that you you know it should confront them but without being exploitative in any way so i guess there is something one of the strengths of it is that you know it, it it's unpleasant because there isn't you know there's there's no one in possum that is yeah. is fighting for him there isn't sure. there's no policeman there's no i mean the policemen are all you know figures of of terror as well you know so it's 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 that kind of paranoid atmosphere but it was important to kind of portray you know a a crime like that and a a horror like that that has no closure for victims you know to 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 portray it truthfully and as sensitively as possible that's great and also um horror films are meant to um not meant to but uh, there's a history of horror films that are used as metaphors for actual things that are yeah. happening in the real world. And, and yeah, well, I think I think most you know all, all good horror films are kind of that. You know, even if they don't, if even if they don't start out being that, you look back and you realise these films are about different you know particular things in the world. I'm, I'm, I read a really good book on um, post. I think it's called Post Nine Eleven. Um, post 9-11 horror in American cinema mm-hmm. it's a fantastic <coughs> book and it just lists all the kind of tropes the, the different um, films and, and things that have kept recurring in films and it's only like coming back 10 years or 15 years after that event you see what all these films are kind of on about you know yeah. they're, they're not literally about what you know what they seem to be about further down the line and I think horror films always kind of you know they come up in those these moments of great anxiety and great you know well, world terror and and like um, the, in the early 70s when uh, just after Vietnam and they had yeah. all the footage of uh, 
you know, dead bodies on TV. That's right. And then the horror films were just like, well, we can't really compete with that. And yeah. so then you'd get films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, started, you know, mm. um, where it was kind of um, where people's tolerance levels had sort of gone up so yeah. much that they, things started becoming really hardcore and hyper-realistic. And, That's right, um, yeah. And then also you've got like all the Atomic Age kind of films, yeah. which are, and I'm not sure that they all thought, oh, let's all band together and make a, a decade of worth of films that are all about the atom mm. bomb. But uh, when you look back on it, you go, yeah, you can definitely categorise them as like 1950s. Yeah, I know? mean, they're all tapping into a into a, an anxiety that, that was being felt, absolutely. And they mm. might not even know they're doing it themselves, I suppose. That's they right, yeah. Of, they pick up more. No, it's like, um, it's hey, atom bomb films are good or we need like a giant ant how's that going to have happened yes, yeah, yeah. oh it will be uh, atomic rays uh, that, that'll be it and then you know you have kind of like um, stuff like Terminator where everyone gets killed in a nuclear war and it's kind of like oh right yeah so that's because you know we were all paranoid about Russia at the time yeah absolutely we're yeah. not anymore yeah obviously Russia aren't a problem but uh, it's great. It's great. It's great living in 2018, <laughs> where everything's been fixed. Um, we are living in the future. We are. The future is now. But yeah, I, I think that that's. I think that's really. Fun. I wrote my. Um, what do you call it? Uh, not a thesis. My dissertation. My dissertation yeah. on uh, on uh, horror films, and uh, yeah, and that, that's what I, that's what I learned from that, which was <laughs> just kind of like. Um, well, St Stephen King wrote an excellent book on on that very topic called Dance Macabre, and it is and it is one of the greatest books ever written on on you know what horror is, what it does, when it you know when it's popular, and why it's popular when it is. It's you know it's it's just a, a fantastic book. Yeah, and the possum of the film. Mm. It's it's funny that it's called a possum. It's a puppet, yeah. essentially. <laughs> but when you when you're imagining, oh, a possum, because I read I read the book first in Robin Insty there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead funny. Yeah, it was re reprinted read, in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, so it wasn't from there. No, it's it? originally from um, an anthology called The New Uncanny by Comma Press, that are a oh, okay. Man Manchester-based short story publisher. So they commissioned the original story, and the idea was to um, look at Freud's dissertation or his you know his essay on the uncanny and to reinterpret the fears that he listed there for a kind of modern reader so that that was the brief that that okay. led to the uh, the initial story oh I, yeah i read it in dead funny which was like an mm. anthology of like horror stories by right, comedians yeah. and comedy actors and people sort of in the comedy world but that was one i remember reading possum in that and being it was almost it was much more disturbing than anything else in the book <laughs> and i found it like really kind of odd and sort yeah. of uh and, it, and even then I had this thing where I couldn't really visualise what the puppet was yeah, yeah. and you just have these sort of it's very sort of visceral and you get sort of it's all sort of how it feels and yeah I mean it was much more a kind of Frankenstein's monster in the story because it's kind of stitched together from you know bits of dead animals roadkill all these sorts of horrific gruesome things and in the film it's 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 changed from that. It's it's you know it's it's more. It's kind of a human spider. It's yes. Yeah. Yeah. How how long ago did you write the story? Two thousand and eight. It was commissioned two thousand and seven. I think I wrote and it was published two thousand and eight. And then when did you start work on the film? Probably around about two thousand thirteen fourteen. I think. Because so I didn't really ever. I hadn't even thought about filming it at any point. It was just a story that that you know was commissioned and, and did it and, and I really enjoyed writing it. But I didn't really think of it <coughs> as a film. But then I was watching a lot of. Um, German silent horror films from the 1920s and I, I was obsessed with you know these these silent films because they seem to be able to express 
um, horrors that were on the surface level. The stories were about something completely different, but you know these were films that were basically allowing people to discuss the horrors of the First World War and, and to kind of express that in some way. And, it, and I found it um, interesting because I thought, you know, is there? A, could you do a silent horror film now? You know, is is they, they was they were so wonderful, and I, I just was you know was really keen to think, could you do that? Could you actually tell a story like that visually? And then I realised that with possum the short story there was a character that couldn't express what they'd gone through had constructed you know a a reality a a puppet that you know that they were projecting all these these unspoken horrors onto and 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 that suddenly became um something that i felt could be told because this was a character that wouldn't speak wouldn't tell wouldn't wouldn't say what had happened to them but they literally just built this thing Mm. that expressed it so that way, I thought, yeah, that's that is a story that could be a kind of modern silent horror film. Yeah, mm. I was surprised to see it on the posters for it on the underground. Yes, yeah. because it's almost I think that's one of the sort of powerful things about watching it is that when you actually see it and you start seeing bits of it, yeah, it's that kind of oh god, what is that? Well, let's see, you kind of keep it back for as long as possible and generate you know some tension and some suspense. And and, and as you say, you know, it's it's called possum, but it's it's more spider like. But possum is really the kind of the, the metaphorical sense of meaning of uh, of playing dead. You know, you right. know, being still. Will it wake up? Is it going to wake up? When will it wake up? Is you know playing dead to protect oneself just that all that kind of implied meaning for for from that kind of metaphorical sense i guess so when did you make your first short back in 2010 I so believe. dark place was 2004 2004 it? yeah and uh, made it made it 2003 and it was televised 2004 i loved it so much oh, thank you <laughs> i was doing theater and education at the time touring mm-hmm. around the country and it was miserable and me and my mate ben from essex Whenever, whatever night it was, Tuesday or Thursday, we used to come in and watch that, <laughs> and it would be a big relief. <laughs> I just loved it. Loved it. Um, Cheers. And so then, oh, but also when uh, when um, uh, I was at, so when did you do Garth Marenghi, uh the live show? Well, those that was some years before then. We we took a um, a show called Garth Marenghi's Fright Night up to Edinburgh for the festival in two thousand. And we were fortunate enough to be nominated for the Perrier that year. And so we followed up the year after with Garth Marenghi's Neverhead. And that was the year that we, you know, where we won the Perrier Award. Did so. you do one in 1999? No. I, what did I do in 1999? Well, did you do one in the 90s? Because we were, at, we were in school. So I did my first Edinburgh in 1997 with my uh, secondary school. And then a bunch of people went to see Garth Marenghi. Oh, well, I, I, I don't know if it was 97 or 98. I performed the character in the Footlights Review, right, actually, right. and that would have been about 95, I think, 1995 or 1996. Can't remember, but I was in the Cambridge Footlights um, University comedy group, mm-hmm. and, and, and definitely the, the character of Garth started then. Yeah. yeah. A bunch of people went to see it, and they said, you've got you to go and see him. And then... Um, there was a girl that I fancied that was going out with my friend and I was just like, I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then you, a few years later, your show came out and I was like, oh, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, 
Uh, yeah, so then you, so you, that was 2004, and then you did Man to Man with Dean Lerner. Yeah. Are you from St Albans, or did you live in no, St Albans? No, I, I lived there for a while, yeah. I, was, I lived in St yeah. Albans. I used to ah, see okay. you around. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, I used to see you. Oh, there he is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd see you at like, uh, the train station and Threshers and stuff, and I'd yeah. be like, there he is. Well, and I couldn't uh, drive then, you see, so I couldn't get out of St Albans. But you, so no one can get out and, of you know, with, <laughs> St Albans is beautiful, but it's quite small. And it's if a you nice can't, place to visit. Yeah, if you can't kind of move out, it, it becomes a little bit cramped. Yes, yeah, I found that. Especially yeah. with me walking around. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so that was... Mm, uh, so when was Man to Man with Dean Lerner? That was, that was 2005, 2006. And so then, uh, after that, you went on to do... And you were in the office... And uh, and then you went on to do um, not, not very much. <laughs> no, but it's a standout part, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's one of the ones that, you know you remember it. Um, and uh, uh, the, oh, sorry, no, I thought you meant uh, yes. No, I, I think it meant not very much after Man to Man because there were a few years there where I didn't really do much at all. Oh, not right. the actual office. Which was, oh right, right, you know. right. Um, and then, but then you. The, so in 2010, you did your first short film, and so your first short film, which was. Gun for George. Right. Yeah. And so how did that come about? Well, that came about, I'd, I'd actually written a, a feature-length script called uh, Shock Absorber, which was, um, which was kind of an early stage of that, an early version of, of Gun for George. But the thing was, I hadn't really figured out how you write feature film scripts at that stage, so it was completely overlong and going off, you know, various tangents and wasn't, you know, in all likelihood, was not a good script. I, I can't bear to like revisit it, so <laughs> it probably is a pretty bad script. But um, but I think that I was with. Um, so that was I got to meet Peter Colton, who was working at Film Four then, and he then moved to Warp Films, and he said, you know, I'd like to, to develop, continue to develop this project, you know, um, and uh, and it was at that point that uh, the there was a suggestion that we could make a short film for film four. You know, let's try this out, try out the character, try out the world and see, see what happens. So, um, so that's, so, you know, that, that, that then became gun for George, um, which oddly enough, I then tried to turn into a, a different feature following that and got, um, all caught up in, you know, a rather, um, huge case of writer's block right. <laughs> because, because it, interestingly, because of the tonal shift in it, because gun for George is both funny and, tragic i mm, guess yeah. and and it kind of it's funny because you can kind of balance it in a short film and then i try to repeat that in a longer script and the the problem with that is the tonal i couldn't get the tonal shifts right and it just became you know neither one thing nor the other it, it was neither a funny film nor a tragic it was it, it, then the pressure was could it be one or the other um, and at, by that point, I'd, I'd kind of lost focus on it. A what was bit. that called? I was going to be called a reprisalizer, yeah, and I hope right. I hope to kind of go back and 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 do it again at some point. I'd like to still make it when I've figured out the best way of, of yeah. kind of doing it, really. And is that character aware of the equalizer, or does it exist in a world <laughs> without the equalizer? I don't think Terry Fitch is aware of anything other than <laughs> the hell going on in his head, really. So it's interesting you know. that in Garth Marenghi you're playing a horror writer. Mm. But then, outside of that, you are also a horror writer. And yeah, in that yeah. film, he's a writer of thrillers. And well, writers really interest me, and and particularly kind of fa failed writers or failing writers. And I mean, I'm, I I love pulp writers. I love the kind of writers that um, churn out so much stuff um, on a you know over and over again. And and you know, writers that don't necessarily get you know those kind of writers that were writing to pay their bills mm. and were you know 
hammering this stuff out and I have huge respect for them because the ones that you know you, you haven't heard about I mean there's some there's one guy that is one of my favourite writers of all time he's called Harry Whittington and he just churned out these pulp uh, novels in the 1950s and 60s and he did he wrote westerns he wrote um, noir novels um, he wrote uh, nurse sagas he wrote swamp crime novels all these kind of very very strange subgenres that came out in the, in the in the first pulp paperback boom but he he was always writing to pay the bills and, and mm. he was just a working writer and he was he, he was incredibly um, successful in his day but then became incredibly unsuccessful and ended up writing pornographic novels simply to pay the bills and it's that kind of uh, you know and, and I still think he's an absolutely master at plotting he's a fantastic writer but the sad thing is is that hardly anyone knows about him and mm. yet I probably learned more from about writing from studying his books than any, anything else really right sure mm. We get that, there's that, they call them journeymen, don't they? Oh, journeyman writers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But they, yeah. yeah. And it's people that write a word count and they should be like, yeah, quite that's pleased right. about going, yeah. oh, to, to achieve this, I need to write... I need to write 3,000 words a day, yeah. otherwise I'm not going to get paid or I'm not going to... And you, and you watch, you know, you read about some of these writers and, and, and the word, I mean, someone like Earl Stanley Gardner, I think, would, would just churn out thousands and thousands and thousands of words a day. I mean, I can manage at most... 1500 words on a good day <laughs> you know and they would write you know but you know five or six thousand words a day and, and they'd still have time to you know break off and do whatever else they're doing that day it's in, amazing so at the time when you were writing garth merengue mm. you're also harboring ambition self to go well i'm going to write horror as well so you're be... yeah always i always wanted to and I, you know i read a lot of ghost stories and, and horror stories and yeah i've always had a, you know and I, I published a few um not many but um you know a few stories in um, anthologies at that time as well um, and I was just sort of learning how to do it at that stage really you know learning how to kind of write ghost stories and, and horror stories It's funny that out of everyone in it there's what uh, you Richard Ayoade and Alice Lowe have all made feature films Yeah, right? yeah. so it's yeah. was that something that was always discussed was it always no not at all no in, um, as I say I mean I didn't really have any intention to direct until Gun for George where you know in fact it was in a film four meeting when they said who, who have you got in mind to direct this and I hadn't really got anyone in mind and then Peter Carlton very kindly said oh well Matthew will direct it uh, and kind of threw me in the deep end but I'm so grateful to him for doing that because he's kind of set me along this path really I don't think I would have done that Alice I think um, I can't, can't speak for her I, I, I don't know if she wanted a director at that stage I think she did actually because she, she in fact she was she, let me step back actually no she was producing lots of short films shortly uh, in and around that period and shortly after so I think she's always been um, keen on that side of things and she's absolutely brilliant and Prevenge I think is, a, is an absolutely wonderful film mm. Richard was always wanting to be a director he wanted to direct Art Place and so did um, and so we, we kind of always knew that he would go off and direct but I think it's interesting because you know we, we at some point we I mean Rich and I really wanted to do a second series of Dark Place and we pitched it to Channel 4 but uh, but they didn't want it. Um, they they thought it was too hard a show for an audience to kind of get into. So they said we want something with less less barriers to understanding. That's I think. crazy. So anyway, so that was the case. So 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 I think you know, and man to man, I didn't enjoy and I didn't like, and and that was really a compromise show because that was the sort of show that they were happy for us to make, but they didn't because they didn't want anything like Dark Place. Um, so. So that experience I found, you know, quite disappointing because it was not remotely creatively fulfilling at all. And it was just not 
Richard and I at our best we just you know we stopped writing together at that point because it was just not going but well at all and I think mainly because I've been unable to get anything else on TV like I guess Dark Place because I really don't think we would ever have got that opportunity again we certainly wouldn't get it today I think all of us that do that kind of thing have branched out into film because that's kind of because we can't do TV <laughs> in an odd way sure. or certainly I feel that for myself I, I don't feel I can get anything like that on TV I just and, and also I'm too old to do that kind of stuff now so. but you have more control as a filmmaker right? yeah yeah you do and, and I would say you know the worst thing the, the best thing for me was starting to direct because you're, you're suddenly taken a lot more seriously as a writer you know if you're just a writer on something that you know it stops respect for what you do stops at a certain point and, and you really have to start directing for people to listen to you again yeah. beyond that point <laughs> when you direct your own your own words you know yeah. you can say as a director well we've got to change the ending and then you can just turn around and say I'm not changing anything and you go yeah. oh, okay we're not changing anything then <laughs> and if you're in it as well you go I'm not I'm not saying this rubbish you are I'm the director you're doing what the writer says funny, you I can imagine it it would be hilarious <laughs> it's, a, it's a little skit I do see comedy on TV sometimes and it's funny that you go you can see what the joke is mm. and it feels feels like whoever's made it has just not understood that that is the joke. Well, do you know what I mean? You can, you can hear it and you go, but that's not, you've not played that as if it's, well, it's a joke. It's, it's hard to do and, and, and you know, and there's, they so rarely let people kind of practice and get on with it. You know, very, every, in TV they're very hesitant to sort of let people play with the tools in a sense. You know, they, and you've got to be able to do that or you don't learn how to do it. You do. You, you, um, yeah, I mean, what's great, I, what's great about doing stand-up is that there's no filter between yeah. what your ideas are. And, and also, I mean, uh, this play is the first first theatre I've done in ten years, yeah. and uh, and I've completely understood whilst doing it why I stopped doing it because <laughs> it's so much fucking work. Uh, and doing stand up was just kind of like a lot easier, but like um, or a lot less uh, complicated. Um, but when you do stand up, you can just go up on stage and you, you kind of have an idea and you say it in front of the audience and you make them laugh. And then people mm. from TV, they go, Oh, we'd love, oh, we'd love you. Oh, you're so good. Let's put you on TV. But don't do that. You know? <laughs> and then you're just like, Well, you we can't do the things that, that you liked in the first place. I did a show which, uh, which got a lot of com comedians on. And then. Um, and then we were sort of like made to change everything that we did, mm. and it was kind of like, oh god, everything was deeply compromised. Mm. And you go, this is this isn't the show that we want to make. This isn't the show you want to make. And we, uh, you know, it, I, I, I completely right. I think that w in, and that was very similar, I, not totally dissimilar to that. Then we had a, a brilliant um, producer, Charlie, who was able to kind of just put a slight protective wall up against us and interference from the channel for Dark Place. And, and I, I think, you know, we would always be very grateful to him for that because he kind of just created an environment for us to, to do what we wanted to do. And, and I think it was, it's really rare that that happens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and he was, he was you know, hugely um, instrumental in, in, I think, uh, allowing an environment that... that, that gave us that wonderful opportunity basically I think it is I think it is really rare. I mean you see something like um, I don't know House of Fools and mm. you go I fully believe that that is the show that they wanted to make yeah and yeah. they you know but you d I don't and Especially with new comedians, yeah. when, when people get in their first big break, you go, yeah, but that's kind of like a... It's, it's, I don't know how rare it is, because I haven't done so much, but I know I did a show called uh, Heavy Entertainment, 
and basically uh, it's not maybe not the edit but I think in the edit it ended up being kind of but when we were actually filming it it was exactly what the best that we yeah. could make it and exactly and we we never got that opportunity again and it's kind of like it was like a go for broke thing where this is our one shot at doing this series and I had a producer uh, Rupert uh, Rupert Magendy and um, and he basically protected me the whole way yeah um, but then so often you work with not so often I've worked with a, a lot of amazing producers but sometimes every so often you work with uh, no not you two in the booth <laughs> uh, you're awful um, but 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 some it's you have those rare times when um they know that you are uh this is this is your this is a ch- there's like a whole kind of like flume of uh of comedians down the pike that are all going <laughs> to come along and they want to protect their job mm, yeah and yeah. it's kind of like you, you're gone tomorrow that's but, it, and but that's I've got to deal with my uh, my superiors for like that's it, and that's years kind of, to come. That's TV, and you know, and and I think that's why you know slowly, the more you do, you 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 learn, you, you find people that you really work with and you really click with, and 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 that's the ideal that you slowly piece, you know find like-minded people that you work well with and, and you kind of iron out those, you know, because there are always people like that and, and you know, that's, that's always been the case, you know, and, and you, you do need to, to look after yourself and look after those that you respect. There's yeah. always a cunt on every production. <laughs> um, uh, but then there's also like, uh, but that's the thing, you know, uh, when, we, when I did Uncle, it was kind of like, uh, you go, oh, I love the art department and I'll use them forever. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, you, you know, you find like a makeup department, and when I did uh, Heaven Entertainment, I found a costume department, and you go kind of like, and then you kind of, it's That's like it. a snowball going and, down mm, the mountain. I mean, the short film I did, Smutch, which was just just before we filmed Possum, I worked with Spencer Millman, who had produced Man to Man with us, mm-hmm. and um, and also Dennis DeGroot, who was the production designer for Dark Place, and it's just great when you can because you know you just you've worked on stuff, you know how each other works. So it's it's like the gang getting back yeah, together yeah, again. Absolutely, yeah. you go well, we'll get we'll get Charlotte and yeah. to do to the art department because she gets me and she knows what the tone is and then also you can have like you're not you're not having creative discussions whilst at the same time having a get to know you yeah kind exactly it's yeah. kind of like you, you hit the ground running with that well, um, I think I know what you mean but it does feel like something from my point of view as well something like Garth Marenghi feels like that's something that that's what you intended to put on screen yeah 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 whereas I feel like now sort of the comedians of mine and Nick's generation feel like they are put into things yeah so it's more yeah. like rather than saying well there's lots of like really great talented people but it's so like, harder to get seen those because there's so many you know yes, I think yeah, yeah. you know I, I, I really don't know how Edinburgh as a festival works anymore because I've not really been up there for, but I think we were pretty lucky in that there was just more chance of being seen but I think if you were starting out now I don't know I, I, I imagine it's just so hard and there's so many people want to get on TV and do that stuff that you know it's it's harder to kind of be noticed there I guess. are so many comedians <laughs> there are so many TV channels and there are so many shows yeah. and it's just you go I don't know I mean it, 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 it should be a world of opportunity shouldn't yeah. it I mean there should be room for all to do exactly but what you want to do mean. it feels yeah. like it should be more idiosyncratic yeah. and you could get yeah. more sort of stranger things yeah. or more unusual things that might Find but they all expect you to do stuff for free. That's the problem. I so think, it's <laughs> well, you have to do stuff for free because otherwise you look like a fucking cunt. Because <laughs> you've got to do it. You've got it's, it's like everyone else. Not everyone else. I've worked with amazing people. I, I still want to work, but um, but you know, but but, but they kind of like go. Um, 
you put in extra hours and everyone puts in extra hours i mean you know uh uh, when you've got a tight budget, you know, the art department will put in extra hours, the costume department will put in extra yeah, hours, yeah. the hair and makeup people will get there early and they'll they'll leave late. They're like the Absolutely, first people yeah. on set yeah. they, and they put in two hours of yeah. free work in the morning before everyone else turns up and gets paid. Mm. And then they're, they're the ones that are packing down at the end of the day and they do it because their work ends up on screen and and they will be judged for that. For, and it's just like, it doesn't matter if you're getting paid for it or not. It's going to be on, end up on screen and so it's got to be as good as possible. So you've got to put in the extra work it's kind of like you could do the nine to five thing where you turn up and then you leave at the end of the day but um but uh, but your work will suffer for it so you have to put in all the extra time in order to you know kind of pride it's self-pride really just of, of your work but you should look at the harlan ellison clip now he he's, he's a science fiction writer and he does this absolutely wonderful explosion at the notion of being asked to work for free and i think it is i mean i i agree wholeheartedly with him and I think uh, you know it's it, he's just absolutely no I will not you know how, how dare you ask me to work for free well, no, no, no one should work for free no yeah. one should but it's, it's, it's the expectation that you should you know right and this comes down to writers and you know writers are really not very well respected in my experience and and I think it's that they you know people expect oh well you're hungry there's loads of people that are competing with you so if you want to you know you, you'll do it for free yes and I think it, it's that is Awful. <laughs> you get that in art. You get that. You get that in. Uh, you get that in comedy. Yeah. You know, uh, we're not going to pay you, but uh, you need to bring four friends, yeah. and uh, you'll get a drink. And you go, oh, it's a long way to go for a drink, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I remember go- doing a stand-up gig in London with my mate Spencer, and uh, and we would we'd agreed to do it. I think for twenty pounds each. And uh, and I, we went to get paid. Asked for our payment afterwards, and he said, Oh yeah, it's been. Yeah, we we said three quid, did we? Like that, and we absolutely kicked kicked off. Of course, and I'm glad we did because then he just thought, oh yeah, or, or how much was it really? Ten was it? No, twenty like that. And you go, oh, all right. And, uh, and I you, think the but, expectations you know, become yeah. so low though that you go there and you go, oh, it's really nice. I'm not getting paid, but someone's put a lovely jug of yeah, water for us. Yeah, that's it. So it can have a <laughs> that's nice the thing. You go, oh, they've got oh, some water. Sweet. That's lovely. <laughs> oh, a lovely promoter. Um, By the way, it was fifty quid for this. Yes. Uh, uh, if you talk to Natalie. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sorry. Natalie sorts uh, the financial stuff. Um, so um, uh, we're going to play your song now. What's your, what's your song? Well, I picked. Um, it's not really a song. It's a theme tune. It's. Um, I love John Carpenter. Did you and see him last week? I did see him last oh, week. Oh, we Yeah, and I'd seen him a couple of years ago as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you were there, were you? Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. And I, I, I'm, I've picked the, the track. Uh, the track I've picked that he's done is is in the mouth of madness. Yeah. And it's. Um, uh, the reason is, it, In the Mouth of Madness was a huge ex- um, influence on Rich and I when we were creating Dark Place, but it's still a huge influence on stuff now. I think all his work is great, and, and I just love this this track. So this is this is like his re-recorded version. I'd only seen In the Mouth of Madness within the last year. I'm not a huge John Carpenter yeah. fan. It's one of those ones that I've always heard is kind of like one of his 90s. Yeah, uh, that's what was it? it. Children of, not Children of the Corn, what was um, it? Um, Village, Village of the Damned. And uh, it's like, okay, I don't, I, I like. I like John Carpenter. I don't need to see bad John Carpenter. Um, and I was, so I was saving it in my back pocket for like, you know, when he passes on. Well, <laughs> it's very, it, it, you know, at times it always it felt very silly, which is why you know I, I kind of enjoyed watching it when we were putting together Dark Place. But actually. The older I get, I, I just think it's kind of come into its own. I and think it's, it's an incredible film. And that is actually what happened with The Thing, because when I grew up, for years, The Thing was seen as not very good and like a real 
poor man's alien kind of thing. Yeah. And the thing has since become... I think Carpenter's films really come into their own further along the line. I've, as never, well. comp- I've never even compared the thing to no. Alien in my head. Mm. No. But, yeah. Alien was always the, the, the kind of it's the alien horror film that was the, the classic. And then the thing has just slowly crept up and taken over. I always <laughs> see Alien as a science fiction film, though. And the thing is a horror film. So mm. I've, I guess yeah. I've never crossed them over in my head. But John Carpenter is his own genre, really. Yeah. And <laughs> In the Mouth of Madness is an incredible film. So. You've got to play it all out. Uh, we're back in in the clubhouse. We're <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, in the studio with Matthew Holness. Um, uh, so that was uh, John Carpenter uh, in the Mouth of Madness. Um, and we've basically been talking about it off air for, for what five is it minutes. That's a five yeah. and a half minute track. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you've yeah. missed all that. You missed all that, but it was it was all good. What's your favourite John Carpenter film? Is it in the Mouth of Madness? No, the thing. The thing is my my. Absolute I think it favorite. is the best. We were saying yeah. that the thing that Mouth of Madness now might be third, third favourite. I mean, what's I mean? Come on. I'd say I'd say the thing, then. What was the second one I had? Oh, Halloween, I think. Yeah. And then possibly in the mouth of Madness. Halloween is one of those films that hasn't aged well because of all of the rip-offs. You reckon? Oh, I don't know. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that once you've seen, what, all of the Halloween films, all of the Friday the 13th films, uh, all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, you, know, you get through them all, and then you go back and watch the first Halloween, you're kind of like, going, yeah, 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 get on with it. I think that Halloween is special, though, because yeah. you do have that thing where now you've got that thing where you go, oh, this one was made a year before Halloween, and Halloween's basically a rip-off of that. Yeah, and you yeah. watch it and you go, yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Halloween isn't. It's really good. Yeah, right, yeah. So it is that. It is still a cut above, and it is still, like, odd and slightly uncanny. In it's a got way amazing... That... I, mean, the, I mean, all the music for all of his films is mm. all, always good, um, and it has got an amazing score. Um, that, the bit where he sort of appears just, you know, doing a sort of sidestep through some bushes and walking back is something that shouldn't shouldn't really work. It feels well, like it's quite a silly idea. It's also... It works. There's one moment in it where he's he's basically created what is now the absolute modern cliche of ho- horror films, which is when the, the baddie is standing at some distance and just clocks their head to yeah, one yeah, side yeah, yeah, yeah. that's actually in there not a, not face on but when he's looking at the guy that he's just stabbed to the wall yeah, yeah, yeah. and he just turns his head and, and you kind of go the Carpenter had done all that he's just nailed it all in that mm, one film yeah, yeah, you yeah. know but also uh, the when he showed the uh, first cut to the producers they were just like this is rubbish because mm. um, uh, and because uh, he didn't have any music to it, and everyone was, "This isn't, this isn't scary. This is, this is rubbish." And then he went away, and he did the score uh, in three days. And yeah. Then, uh, and he was just like, "Right, we've got to have some scary music." And I think that really does add to the film. I don't. I, I, I like Halloween. I love John Carpenter, um, uh, but um, I would say that it's not one that I have to revisit that often. Whereas the thing I can watch over and over again, Big Trouble in Little China, I can watch over and over again. Uh, in the Math of Madness is still very new to me. But like, then there's stuff like Escape from New York, which I can't be bothered with. And Escape, it's just like, <gasps> it's, not, it's not The Warriors. <laughs> I think The Warriors is, is like, almost like the same film, but better. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and Escape from New York doesn't really do it for me. And Escape from LA, that talk about Bruce Campbell films. that he, <laughs> he absolutely. I mean, I went to see it because Bruce Campbell was in it. Um, 
But it's interesting. One thing, uh, I, I, what we were talking about while that was playing was that, you know, there are some Carpenter films that I think I feel are, are kind of classic, undiscovered classic Carpenters. Because sure. I think Christine is incredibly good now and, and I never used to really rate it among Carpenter's films now I, I, it's fast creeping up to be one of my absolute favourites and I almost feel like his films become greater the longer they're yeah, around yeah. you know yeah it does. It feels like They Live has really found its time mm. now. and, you, and it, uh, The middle uh, section of They Live. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. But it does feel like that was a film that, that for years I was just like, I didn't care for it. I and then you see it. it again and go, oh, I'm an idiot. But the, I think that a lot of his films, are, I really love the basketball sequence in Escape from L.A., but and you, it sort of tricks you into going back and watching Escape from LA, and then going, "Oh, it's awful, though." And uh, <laughs> but with uh, with They Live, it's kind of like that that fight in the in the alleyway. It kind of like you go into it, and then you realise that you actually have to sit through very boring twenty minutes right at the top. It makes me wonder if in ten years' time we're all going to be somewhere, and we're all going to go, guys. I've just seen Escape from LA, and it is the best film I've ever seen. Well, I think I think Ghosts of Mars is going that way. Yeah. I remember seeing Ghosts of Mars at the cinema. That's his fourth remake of Rio Bravo. Yeah, right. and I and I, you know, I remember thinking, oh no, this is oh, no, really wanted like this. Now that's just come out on on Blu-ray now. But weirdly enough, it's already of more interest than it was to me at the time, simply because it's all old Hollywood techniques. It's on film. It looks right. a lot older than you remember it being. Jason Statham's got hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's kind of and and there's lots of back projection and just these old classic techniques yeah, right. that are just not used anymore. Because when was that made? That was I think that came out in ninety seven, ninety eight, yeah, something that. like that. Because vampires came out just after it, didn't it? Yeah. And what do you think about vampires? I w I, John Carpenter's quite, vampires. It's not quite to be confused nasty. with anyone else's vampires. It's, it's quite nasty and a little bit, um, yeah, slightly dodgy in places. But it's, it's a good film. It's really disappointing uh, uh, the actual, the look of the actual vampires. That just yeah. they all look like mm. goths, and it's kind of like it's it's sort of cliched, but it's also shit. It's yeah. just like, you go, these are your vampires. These are John. These aren't just any vampires, <laughs> John. John these are John Carpenter's <laughs> vampires. And they're sort of like, there's a sort of lack of imagination. And then, like, a couple of years, well, maybe about the same time, a couple of years earlier was from Dust Till Dawn, right? Yeah. And then you've yeah. got, like, some, you've got, like, a vampire film that's kind of, like, really span it on its head. And it's like, but then again, you know, that, like, you're, like you're saying, those, it's, it's weird. We'll kind of look back, and those films will be, there'll be a cluster of films that uh, define that kind of era of, of yeah, horror sure, film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think they all, there is a look to that. I've mm. noticed this with the whole, you know, Stranger Things thing coming out. There's, you know, the, just the fonts. Actually, it's kind of, the obsession is moving on from those sort of 80s fonts and 80s style to, actually, I I think kind of the 90s horror paperbacks. There's something about the fonts mm. used and the look of those things that is becoming its own retro thing well, now, a, I think. There's a weird sort of, I've noticed people seem to be revisiting Scream, which yeah. I find quite odd. Yeah, it? Yeah. it feels like that's become a thing that people talk about, yeah. which was in itself very kind of postmodern and self-referential. But I now think, people are talking about it like... Well, it's interesting because all those pre-9-11 pre horror films, they're kind of, it's, it is before that momentous... Change and and so they kind of there's something like there's something naive in a sense about the depiction of what horror was then mm. you know and it, and they 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 become interesting I think for that reason mm. as well because they do you know it's it is a vanished vanished time and I remember seeing vampires. Um, Ghosts of Mars in the cinema, and it was, you know, it, it was a different, it felt like a very, very different world then. There wasn't, mm. you know. But even at the time, certainly something like In the Mouth of Madness felt like 
it did feel sort of like it, you were almost aware of films being 90s in the 90s. Yes. What, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, so that, uh, in Mathematics, I think it was about 95. Oh, so, it, but Jurassic Park. Has, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, So you've yeah. got like, um, so anything with Sam Neill as a lead is anything that 90s. was going to be uh, <laughs> a new line cinema thing that you knew would be released by entertainment in video all felt like you're watching a similar yeah. kind of film. And I've, I've found that the really bad keyboard synthesizer sounds that in the 90s that were so weak, so un, non-80s, they were really bland, really awful. They now actually sound quite good, I think. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like they, they actually sound quite appealing and atmospheric, <laughs> but in a kind of 90s John Carpenter way. Yeah. It's really odd. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got... Six minutes. Oh, wow. We're almost five minutes. Okay. So uh, we've got to play the game. We've got to play the game. And this game is... Where is the... I'll just get my thing up. It's called Better or Worse. And you just have to say whether the next person I mention is better or worse than the person before it. Oh, my God. I'm going to fail this. Okay. Well, not necessarily. It's all based on my own opinion. So Ewan McGregor is your starting card. And is uh, Christopher Reeve better or worse than... You and McGregor. Christopher Reeve. Can I just make a point? Uh, the jingle isn't too loud. Nat's too quiet. Oh, okay. Because you turned him down, remember? <laughs> so keep going. Uh, Christopher Reeve is better? Better. Correct. Christopher Reeve is better than you and McGregor? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, Whoopi Goldberg, better or worse than Christopher Reeve? I'd say worse. Worse for me. I'm going to say worse. It is worse. Um, Humpty Dumpty. The fictional... The fictional nursery rhyme <laughs> character. Is he or she better or worse than Whoopi Goldberg? Worse, surely. It doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah, you can't worse. do yeah. that to yeah. Whoopi Goldberg. That's right. sure, I agree. You can't do that to Oscar-winning yeah. Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, She's a high card, certainly. Do you know what? You can't. That's correct. <laughs> um, that is... Oh, that's fan club. Is Liam Neeson better or worse than Humpty Dumpty? Oh, better. 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 better for the same reasons, I guess. Oh, I think you've learned one. something yeah. here today, haven't you? Know? <laughs> it is a weird one. But the, the actual real people are better than nerdy Real people. Right. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Um, is George Cole, that's fan club, uh, better or worse than Liam Neeson? Worse? I want to say better. Oh! I really like George Cole. Is Lady Gaga better or worse than George Cole? Better, um, I quite like one of one of her songs. But you don't like any of George Cole's songs? I don't <laughs> think I've heard many. I don't, no, know. I don't, know, if I don't, don't know who George Cole is. He's I've, uh, I've, I've, Arthur Daly. Um, sure. I never watched Munda. Um, I'd say George Cole is better than Lady Gaga. Is Oprah Winfrey better or worse than Lady Gaga? Oprah Winfrey better than Lady Gaga. Oh, better. Better. She better. gives away free cast, doesn't yes. she? Yeah. Harrison Ford, better or worse better. than Oprah Winfrey? Better. Well, I've got to say better just because I'm a Star Wars fan sure. from childhood. Sure. And ZZ Top, are they better or worse than Harrison Ford? Worse. Worse. That's I've it. I saw them live. <laughs> I saw them worse. live. And what's Harrison Ford like? Uh, he was like, their support. He, he did their support. <laughs> he, just think he should have he closed. Um, <laughs> ZZ Top live. I saw them live and they... Um, uh, where was it? It was it was Wembley Arena, and we sat right at the far end, like so we were f- facing mm-hmm. right on. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely rammed. Uh, ZZ Top came out, and they did a show, and they had uh, like a backing screen, yeah, uh, <laughs> that was that was behind <laughs> them that showed all of their sort of like visuals, right? And the screen, I'm not joking, was six foot high. 
<laughs> it was like it was like it was like they turned up to do a corporate gig in a hard rock cafe, right? And uh, and they just so, like no expense spent, right? It was just like they just like, they hadn't made any effort. It was a total cash grab. I think Thunder was supporting them, and Thunder were absolutely incredible. And then ZZ Top came out, and it was kind of like fucking hell. Um, but anyway, you got seven points, which ain't great, but ain't no, bad. Well, okay, it's pretty good. Once it's, upon a time, a, that was a good. That was a very good score. Other sevens were Haley Campbell, Brett mm-hmm. Goldstein, Charlie Hickson, Ian Smith, and Josh Widdicombe. Okay. So you're in a good. You're in a good okay, game. Fair enough. Uh, do you know what? Can you uh, can you do a, a spreadsheet of this so uh, so that we've got that in the future? Because I think that that is. Oh, oh you've done. Oh, oh my god. That. Okay, so oh, uh, well. John Niven's uh, uh, the only person with ten. Michael yeah. Legg got uh, nine, nine. Uh, and. Uh, Still, still at the bottom there. Sam Ashurst with three, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, but, um, but yeah, great. Well, um, yeah, we're going to finish now, I suppose. But, right. um, Wonderful. Thank you so much thank for, you coming for coming in. in. Pleasure. Really thank it. you. Thank you very much. Uh, really go lovely. See, go uh, and see Possum. Yes. From yeah, this evening, do. I guess. From tonight. And you can get it on demand as well, so you can watch it from home. Oh, really? Yes. Is that um, is that the future? I think so. Various VO, VOD outlets. Okay, cool. Video on demand. Um, what are we going to end with? Oh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> I, hope it's not, I hope it's not the whole future. I hope you can still go and see films at cinemas. That's I'd the love best going to way. Si- I love going to the cinema. Because yeah. uh, I, I, it's my, the best place to go to uh, catch up with my mates and chat. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.